We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Welcome on in to the church service here at Fellowship Bible Church. This is our morning worship service, as we call it. We have our adult Bible study and Sunday school hour. Yeah, we Jansen did do that, and we're grateful for that ministry in the Word earlier today at 9.45. Now we have this one. We have a full plate today. Uh, at least I'm planning to serve a full plate. I don't know if you're going to eat the full plate, but we'll give it to you anyway. So I trust you have a copy of God's Word with you there, and we'll turn it to Proverbs. We are in Proverbs and 29, Proverbs chapter 29. If we could just kind of digest all of this wisdom and put it into practice. How wise we would be, wouldn't we? Proverbs 29. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people Grown. Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. By transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. The righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. The bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. A fool vents all his feelings but a wise man holds them back. Verse 12, if a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. Correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Do you understand what that means? I think people have taken that verse and uh, they've, they've said, uh, where there is no vision. Is that, does any translation have that? 
where there's no vision. What kind of vision are we talking about? We're not talking about um, business leadership, vision casting, you know, strategy, planning, uh, marketing, development, all of that sort of thing where you know, we don't have a forward-looking kind of mindset. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is saying when there is no prophetic revelation, when there is no word of God, when there is no preaching of the word of God, when there is no, in other words, prophetic vision, when there's no information from God, and now you would say, well, how does that, I mean, we have revelation from God. Yeah, but how much, how, how, how often is this book actually opened? People will close it, shelve it, forget it, reject it, don't believe it, deny it, and there's no, therefore no revelation. And the people cast off restraint, and thus the society is exactly like it looks today. Take the Bible out of everything, and what do you get? Chaos. Yeah. The people cast off restraint because there is no restraining morality that is taught to them from the Word of God because there is no, the revelation has been closed and hidden. But it says, happy is he who keeps the law. How happy a society would be if it was full of law keepers? You know, well, even just secular law keepers, that'd be super. But if it were biblical law keepers, well, it'll look a lot more like that during the kingdom when Christ rules. Yeah, got to wait a little bit for that yet. Verse 19, a servant will not be corrected by mere words, for though he understands, he will not respond. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There's more hope for him, sorry, for a fool than for him. He who pampers his servant from childhood will have him as a son in the end. An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He swears to tell the truth, but reveals nothing. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Just put that, put that one away especially. You fear people, it's going to bring a snare one time or another. You'll find out, and it's not going to turn out well. It'll make a mess of things. Verse 26, many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. And then finally, uh, verse 27, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Just the opposite there. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 9 again this morning, please. Genesis and chapter 9. I uh, didn't finish the material from last week, so I intend to go ahead and do that today and then to address some specifics about one of the verses or one of the concepts that we talked about last uh, Sunday. But we'll begin with uh, finishing the exposition of the chapter. And uh, so I didn't print out the notes again for you on that. That was uh, the set of notes from last Sunday. They are available on the website uh, for you still in um, very slightly, uh, I would say, modified form. But they are there. And uh, I'm going to continue to go through those. And then the notes that are in the bulletin are the new kind of single-issue notes that we'll talk about as God permits, and we have time this morning. Um, when we left off last time in Genesis chapter 9, 
we um, were at the point where we had finished uh, verse up through verse 7, and we come, come to uh, verse 8. We talked about the rainbow covenant, I believe, uh, the sign of that covenant and uh, how, it was now, how it now signifies the promise that God has made not to destroy the earth by reason of flood. That takes us through verse number oh, 17, really. This is the sign of the covenant that he's established. And then in verse 18, we come to a part of the chapter that deals with Noah and his sons. And uh, I've called it the the sin of Noah and the prophecy about his children. And we are uh, first looking at a genealogy, a very brief one, where it says, now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. That note will become significant in a moment, uh, why he... uh, God had Moses put that there. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. So the passage here reminds us of these sons and uh, that they were the ones who populated the entire earth. Just like originally the earth was populated from Adam and Eve, uh, there is no one today who does not trace their genealogy back to one of these three Sons, and then of course through them to Noah, and then be, you know behind Noah all the way back to Adam and Eve once again. And this is again because the extent of the flood was universal. Uh, we've dealt with that in great detail, and no one besides these eight people—Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wives—survived the flood. First Peter three chapter twenty makes that very clear. Now verses twenty to twenty-three then. It says, Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank the, of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness." So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died." As it's often the case, uh, Noah experienced that one sin led to another. And the same is true for us today. The account says that Noah was a farmer, innocent enough. He kept a vineyard, sort of innocent enough. Of course, the fruit of that vineyard was, was the grape, which he then turned into wine. Now, there was, there's a whole study that we could do on this. Um, and uh, it would be interesting for us to invite uh, Pastor Mike Harding here sometime to preach on it because he has a sermon that he calls um, The Wrath of Grapes. And uh, that's an interesting turn on a phrase, isn't it? But uh, the fruit was the grapes he turned into wine. There's some necessity in ancient times for there to be uh, some fermentation in order to protect the, you know, from bacteria, harmful bacteria and things, but uh, on this wine he became drunk, and that is never permissible in biblical theology, drunkenness. 
as is often the case when drunkenness occurs, other sinful and shameful things occur. And Noah, in this situation, somehow became exposed, and Ham observed that situation. Instead of showing respect for his father and discreetly handling the problem of his father's exposure, he broadcast this matter to his brothers. Maybe it was funny to him. Maybe it was some kind of sick perversion in his mind. The Bible doesn't explain exactly the detail of what happened, sparing us from uh, that grossness. And, uh, but obviously his thinking was, was not upright. It was not wholesome. It was not righteous or holy. And his, his elder and younger brother did the right thing, the, the two of them, by carefully covering up their father in his drunken state and tried to maintain his dignity as well as their own in the process. So they covered him up. Indeed. Now the prophecy then, as we read in verses 24 through 27, the prophecy lays out a curse on Canaan. And you say, well, why isn't the curse on him? Uh, It also pronounces a blessing on Shem and Japheth and declares that Canaan and his descendants will be servant to both of his brothers. Chapter 10 tells us basically that Japheth's descendants are the Europeans and Asians, that Ham's descendants are those populating the Middle East and Africa, especially Egypt. You see in Psalm 105, 23, it talks about Israel going down to the land of Egypt, uh, Jacob sojourning in the land of Ham, making those two uh, equal, Egypt and uh, or, uh, Ham going there to the land, that land, and uh, making it equal to Egypt. And then Shem's descendants are the Semitic peoples, the Shemites, the Semites, populating Middle East and Israel. And uh, how this prophecy works out is not clear to me in all of its details. I know that some make a big deal about going through all of this and trying to figure out how, you know, Japheth and, and Ham and Shem and all fit together and kind of, you know, take today 8 billion people and you know, kind of configure them in accordance to these three groups. And it just, it's too much for me because there's so much intermixture now and so much, you know, combina- so many combinations and moving around and things like that, that I don't think it's very profitable for us to try to figure out all of those details. But this does offer us the difficulty of a father-son passage in the sense that the father commits a sin, Ham, and the son and the future generations pay for that sin. How does this square with the Bible's teaching that uh, the son will not bear the sin of the father? And that's in Ezekiel 18, verses 19 to 20. So first of all, in order to answer this, we have to understand that there's some natural consequentiality, if I could call it that, natural consequences for sin that can prevail for many generations in that Well, among other things, it sets an example and an environment where wicked ways are propagated from father to son. 1 Kings 22.52 gives an example of Ahaziah, who walked in the way of his father and mother and ancestor Jeroboam. Certainly, the example and actions of the parents had a profound effect on the life of him as a youth. By the way, just as a side note, you notice I wrote a lengthy footnote there on page, well, you might not have it in front of you there because it's last week's notes, but a lengthy footnote that refers to an article that I wrote on our church website that has to do with this matter of, of Ham and Canaan and the, uh, uh, the curse here on them 
and uh, others, some people suggesting that this predicts the, uh, the slavery of Africans, while others use it to justify that practice. Some talk about how the curse was a mark on them and darkened their skin and all of that. And I take that view to task very harshly, uh, directly in that article. I'm, I give a summary of it in the footnote there, which is on uh, the bottom of one of your pages of notes from last week. So I'm not going to go over that again. You know that that's a ridiculous argument, and we're just going to set it aside for now. I can talk with you about that later uh, if you want to do that. A very bad example of, of how to understand Scripture. Uh, it's misreading it entirely wrong, just in a very bad way. But back to our train of thought here about fathers being uh, sin, sins of fathers kind of somehow affecting their children. Another example is in Exodus 20, verse number 5, where the, and this is in the Ten Commandments, where this, the Lord says that the iniquity of the fathers will affect the children to the third and fourth generation. And you say, well, why is that? Well, because he says the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. People who hate God often pass on that hate to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. The children are doing the same and so are culpable on their own basis. They're not getting a consequence for sin that somebody else did. They're getting a consequence for what they have done. And, of course, they are impacted by that past uh, example. You can see how this would come about. Uh, An atheist father often raises an atheist child. Not always, of course. God's grace reaches into those situations as well. Um, And the same idea occurs in a number of other biblical passages that I've listed there in the notes for you. I observe also a countrywide illustration of this principle of sins kind of impacting later generations, not necessarily punishing them for those sins, but passing those results on down. Those countries, for instance, whose rulers are communistic or Islamic, long ago have closed the doors to the gospel of Christ. And if you don't have the gospel of Christ, you shut out a large light from God in your land. You shut the windows of heaven, as it were, for the blessing from God to come. Millions of individuals, even years later in those countries, are impacted by the decisions of former leaders and adopt their own mindset opposed to the gospel. So, yeah, they decided in country X, you know, 300 years ago, this is the way we're going. And they raise their kids that way, and they educate their kids that way, and they close the door to the gospel, and then they wonder, well, maybe they don't wonder. Maybe we on the outside wonder, why did they do that? Why did they harm, do so such self-harm to themselves by closing out the grace of God in their, in their place? So the upshot is the son is not punished for the sins of the father, though the sins of the father do affect him. The son is punished for his own sins. In this case, Ham had an unbridled perversion in his heart, which evidently he passed on to his son Canaan. His, he, was a, he was a perverted fellow in some way, and he passed that on to his son. The same moral stain on the father became active in the life of the son, and the son received the same curse because he was involved in the same kind of behavior. Like father, like son. We have that. We understand that. It's evident in later Old Testament accounts, that the Canaanites were reprobate people in terms of idolatry, sexual immorality, 
child sacrifice, and, and so on and so on. A very, very bad uh, kind of stock came down from that, a very bad set of behaviors. Speaking to a more basic underlying truth, remember that the Bible does tell us that the sin of Adam is imputed to all people so that the righteousness of Christ can likewise be imputed to all who believe in him. And of course, Adam's sin nature was passed on to us through our parents and grandparents and so on. And so that sin of the representative of the race had a huge impact on us personally. Just keep in mind, you have three big-time problems, okay? Adam's sin is imputed to your account because you're part of his race. Uh, Adam's nature is passed on to you because you are a descendant of his, and you have personal sin that you have committed. Christ solves all three of those problems. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and the sin of Adam that was imputed to you is taken away. The nature that was passed down to you is changed because when you become a new creature in Christ, the old things have passed away, all things have become new. The old man is dead, the new man has come. Your sin nature has been broken as to its dominating effect in your life, and thus your practice of sin is also changed, and you become uh, more holy in your conduct. So the gospel of Christ addresses sin now, from, from every possible angle that there could be. And so, and, and I should add this, I suppose, too. If you say, well, you know, my upbringing um, was bad. My parents weren't the greatest. Um, you know, they abused me. Yes, they taught me bad things. Yes, but are you going to believe that or are you going to believe God's word? I so encourage you to get into God's word and say, God, what would you have for me? Because if I had a bad, you know, bad teaching when I was coming up, bad information poured into my conscience and into my mind, God can cleanse that out from you. He can help you. He can help you overcome that. Okay. So we read uh, to the end of the chapter. I'll just set that issue aside. We have now the death of Noah. He lived 350 years after the flood. Most of us would be amazed to live 350 years, period, but he lived 350 years after he had already lived 600 years, 950 altogether. And even though he found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he was just and he was, as the Bible says, perfect in his generations, we we just saw an incident here where he was stained by sin, but generally walking with the Lord, and so he still died. Sin always results in death, except for an exceedingly small number of times. Uh, Enoch, for one example, Elijah for another example, and of course, a few resurrections that occurred here and there in the biblical history. It's a sad appendix on his life that he could not control himself with the wine. And I just use that to remind us that if a man of Noah's caliber could not control himself, What about you and me? I use this as a very good reason to stay away from alcohol entirely. And uh, I commend that example to you. Not that the scriptures say that you can't have any fermented drink. I understand all that. But, uh, you know, for me, I have the additional weight of uh, not having the luxury to just kind of check out for a while. 
Some people want to check out from life's problems, you know, and have a couple of drinks and have a little, you know, high feeling about things. I don't have that luxury. 24-7, Thursday after, Friday afternoon, I get a call from the hospital. Uh, well, actually, it was a message. And uh, I don't understand how they train their people to call like this, but they called and they said, uh, this is the uh, intensive care unit at uh, the Wyandotte Hospital, and um, we have a question for you. It's not urgent. And uh, I was like, this is the ICU. I mean, that sounds like kind of bad. So I called back and got a hold of the person and talked to them. And, um, yeah, well, uh, your, your uh, person you know, Rick, is uh, on a ventilator in the hospital. I didn't have the luxury to be checked out or entertaining myself or whatever. I had to be sober-minded and ready because they had to ask me questions. You're the guy that he chose to be the deciding person in the case of his incapacity, and he's incapacitated, so we have to have your permission to do this and this and this. So we don't have the luxury. And listen, I mean, all of us, do you want to be ashamed before the Lord when he comes? No. Do you know when he's coming? No. So our argument to be ready still stands here. Be ready all the time. Well, we talked about the, the chapter and, and the responsibilities that God has given to us as a race and as individuals to be good stewards of what he has uh, uh, given to us to fill the earth, to reproduce. talks about the rainbow capital punishment, about the diet, and all of those things. And so we looked at all of that, and we saw the kind of prevailing cultural pressures against all of those things. And uh, I just encourage you to put those in your mind and say, hey, this is what God has told us. I'm not going to be conformed to the ways of the world. One of the ways in which the world tries to conform us is, and it's almost almost imperceptible in a way to us, is by, by, by preaching and pressing its philosophies of different things upon us. And I think that has happened in some measure with the death penalty itself. And I had at least two uh, kind of objections raised this week to me about what we spoke about last week in Genesis 9-6. And so I thought I would just address those so that you see how I think about those things from Scripture and uh, that we're not afraid to deal with any objection to God's teaching here. We'll take them all and deal with them straightforwardly. Um, don't, you know, don't think that this is like a pet topic of mine. I really don't like talking about it. But if people are asking questions and raising objections about it, then I feel that uh, at that point at which there are questions and objections, I should respond to those things. Now, for some, just hearing of the topic of capital punishment raises the ire uh, who, of those who do not consider all the angles and, and, and in a contemporary fashion want to just shut down the discussion. You know, freedom of speech is a thing of the past. They don't want to hear it. They just want to chant and r- rant and rave and shut down the speaker so they don't have to deal with the ideas that he brings. But we are not so impatient and close-minded as to do that. We will hear all objections, and then we expect that you will hear all responses to those objections that we have to offer. Now, in teaching last week on the subject, I reported the Bible's teaching and some Christian implications of the teaching of capital punishment. Uh, That was not me 
sitting here showing you how bloodthirsty I am and how you know, wonderful I think the death penalty is. It's a very distasteful subject. To think about, you know, like what happened this week, you know, family members going to view an execution. That just doesn't sit right in my stomach. Uh, you know, if it has to happen, it has to happen, but just, just get it over with, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll believe the news when I hear it. I don't have to see the whole thing in all of its gory detail. My, my demeanor is not to be delighted with this topic in any manner at all. Uh, I'm kind of sensitive about that. Death of any sort bothers me. You know, when you accidentally run over an animal or something like that, it just is bothersome. It's, it's, and I think that's an evidence of, a, of God's work in the soul of a person not being callous. I mean, you know, people like, you know, driving down the road like, aim for the squirrel. That's ridiculous. That's such an awful attitude, you know. It's just wrong, just wrong. Um, my demeanor is rather that I want to obey God and I want our society to obey God and I want to exercise mercy where possible. And, and, and I believe, too, that victims are sometimes forgotten in the whole debate about capital punishment. So there are three particular kinds of objections that I wanted to deal with about this. Number one, does mercy overrule capital punishment? We're taking this from um, Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now, uh, before I come to the mercy thing, I'll just uh, argument here or objection. I'll just mention this. The reason... That, that God is so stringent about this, that he's so, it's seemingly to some of our ears harsh about this, is because each human being is made in the image of God. One of our brothers pointed out to me a, a phrase that you don't see in the scriptures, but it's almost like people treat humans as being made in the image of animals. If you're an evolutionist, what else, what's, what's the difference between saying that you're evolved from slime or you're made in the image of an animal? Some people say things like, I'm a mammal. No, you're not a mammal. Yeah, I understand the taxonomic classification system and the similarities between blah, blah, blah. I know all of that. I know my biology well enough. You are a human being made in the image of God. You are not an animal. Okay? You all look quite different than if this room were filled up with chimpanzees sitting in the chairs listening to me, okay? Totally different ball game. So we are not animals. We're not made in the image of animals. And uh, I propose sometimes test cases. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a problem with overpopulation of deer in the city of Ann Arbor. So they have a deer cull where they're sharpshooters that hunt those deer and and reduce the population. I say to myself, what if I were to propose a different approach? Let's propose that instead of doing that, we'll just uh, have uh, deer mom abortions. Whenever the moms are pregnant with deer, we'll just abort those babies. So we'll reduce the population that way. Wouldn't that be acceptable? Would that be acceptable? 
I don't think that people would find that acceptable. Yet, we sit here and we abort children, right and left, and don't care about that. In any case, um, we're made in the image of God, and that's why when somebody is killed, a, I call it a copy of the image of God. An instance of the image of God has just been destroyed. Has just been destroyed. Okay? Now, does mercy overrule capital punishment? Uh, some object to capital punishment based on the idea of mercy. And I've put in my notes here what I believe there is a place for mercy to be mixed with judgment. In fact, God says that to those who showed no mercy in their judgment, no mercy will be shown. Remember that? James chapter 2, verse 13. And if God had no mercy, if mercy was absent from God's character, where would you and I, where would we be? Perish the thought. Too awful to think of. But at the same time, blind mercy cannot overtake judgment so that no judgment remains. God still gave the command in Genesis 9, 6, and God is full of mercy. Would you agree? God is full of mercy, and God gave the command. So that means a merciful God gave the command that people object to on the basis of God's mercy. Hmm. There's no conflict in the mind of God here. You can't conflict God. You can't make it a a thing that's unresolvable. It is resolvable. So how can God command the killing of murderers, and how can that agree with his merciful character? Are these two things opposed to one another? I'll give you three answers to that. Part of the answer is this. God in mercy considered, listen to this, every factor in every case of every murder that would ever occur before he gave this command. He cons- have you considered every factor in every case of every murder that would ever occur as you think about mercy being applied? Or, or that we should just wipe out the death penalty altogether. He considered all of that. He considered the individual criminal, his repentance or lack thereof. He considered the society and mercy. He considered the specific victims. He considered the advanced knowledge of the future criminal's behavior, the effect that the criminal may have on bringing other people to the Lord and other people bringing him to the Lord. God considered all of that in his mercy and still gave this command. Secondly, another part of the answer is God's mercy is also perfectly integrated with his, another attribute, his holiness. God's mercy is perfectly integrated with his holiness. In God's universe, sin must be addressed righteously. It cannot be ignored, cannot be ignored. And finally, another part of the answer about mercy and this judgment existing together harmoniously in the mind and will of God Another part of this is that God exercises mercy toward victims and society at large, not just toward criminals who did the criminal behavior. Some criminals simply need to be taken out of this life to protect the society at large by restraining sin, and that is an expression of God's mercy. Are you with me? Mercy narrowly focused on one subject is missing the fact that there needs to be mercy to all the subjects. Okay. I mean, have you heard of the man who says, if you put me in jail, I will not stop killing people. I cannot stop. I love killing people. Cold-blooded. 
But there are some people who have said and done, behaved that way. Capital punishment in that case is a mercy to the people other than the murderer who will be his victims. Secondly, second, uh, major objection now. Okay, so we've dealt with the one about mercy. Second one is, is the Old Testament law superseded? Is it superseded? Is, is not this command in the Old Testament, and are we not under the Old Testament law anymore? So look, we can just set it aside, couldn't we? Well, this objection is based on a true tenet that we are not under the law, but also on a false piece of information, an unbiblical piece of information. True, we are not obligated to keep the law of Moses. We are not to offer animal sacrifice. We don't have to keep kosher diet. We don't have to visit the temple three times a year. Uh, We don't have to avoid mixed fabrics and all those details that the law had in it. But we still abide by those portions of the moral law that have not been superseded in Christ, which express timeless moral principles. Now, Another part of this answer here about the Old Testament law being superseded is this, Genesis 9-6, although it's located in the Old Testament, is it in the law? It's not. When did the law, when was the law given? In what portion of Scripture was it given? Exodus 20 is the start of it, really, the Ten Commandments, and then after. Uh, 1400 BC. So that's 3,500, 3,400 years ago. We're talking about 5,000 years ago in this passage before that. So actually, it's before Moses by 1,500 years. This regulation about capital punishment is true, as we said, for all times, people and places, because murder is always wrong. It's always wrong because God created man in his image, and as I just talked about, that snuffs out, murder snuffs out a copy of the image of God. And so a punishment of equal weight should be exacted. So said another way, yes, we are not under the law of Moses, but Genesis 9-6 is not in the law of Moses. It's in a preceding law. Um, our, our existence in the church in Christ means that our basis for relating to God has changed because God has come to fulfill, or Christ has come to fulfill the law of Moses, which we could not have done in any case, uh, and we, we could never hope to do. He's the great fulfiller of that law and the last sacrifice for our sins. So our, our basis of relating to God is different now than the basis of a Jewish person back in the Old Testament. Okay, in order to in order to express their belief in sanctification, what did an Old Testament believer have to do? Keep the law. What do we have to do? Well, we believe, yes, but how do we express our sanctification? We do the things that the New Testament commands us to do. We come to church, we pray, we give, we sacrifice, we help others in need, we preach the gospel, we you know, all those things that the New Testament teaches us. We keep ourselves pure, all of that. But we don't, we don't express ourselves through the law of Moses. And then I would also finally note in uh, your notes there, Romans 13, verse 4. We cannot say that the um, command in Genesis 9 is superseded or set aside because in Romans 13, 4, 
Paul says that the authorities do not bear the sword in vain. What does that mean? That means that they can use the sword, and the sword is not just for tapping somebody on the shoulder. It could be used to lop off their head, or stab them through the heart if they're a malefactor. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, look at that principle way back there in Genesis. I'll do it from your side. Way back here in Genesis, he's kind of fast-forwarding it and bringing it forward into the present age in the church and saying, yeah, that's a valid principle even now still. So Paul puts his stamp of approval on uh, the notion that we're speaking about here. That was second objection, okay? So an objection based on mercy, yes, we should be merciful case-by-case basis. Second objection, is the Old Testament law superseded? No, it's, yes, the law is, but is this part of the Old Testament law? No, it's not, so it doesn't fit. Third objection, and this is the bigger one. I spent the most text on this, and this is in the unjust implementation of capital punishment. Several in our assembly have mentioned this. This objection says that the death penalty should be abolished because its effects are disproportionately enacted on one group of people, or sometimes it is implemented upon innocent people. And of course, the the moral cost of that is so high that some of us feel like we should just dispense with the whole thing so we avoid that hazard. In other words, the idea is that unjust implementation means that we should scrap the idea entirely. Now listen, here's the key principle I want to get across this morning on this subject. Yes, it is difficult to properly apply Genesis 9-6 in a modern, in any society. Okay, we're sinners, everything's imperfect, we're in a mess, okay, blah, 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 you know the whole story. Very difficult. But difficulties in obeying God's word do not excuse us from obeying God's word. Okay? Difficulties in being obedient don't mean we can just throw up our hands and say, forget it. Let me give you an example that's not related to this, but it's related to your everyday life. Sanctification is difficult. Some of you face temptations that you think, this is too hard. I cannot overcome this at this moment. This anger, this lust, this impatience, this whatever it is. I'm just going to throw in the towel. Obedience is too difficult. Forget it. I'm just going to, God will forgive me and I'm just going to run with it. Nope. God's will is for you to be sanctified. God's will is for you to be morally holy. God's will is for you to be patient. Keep those lusts under control. Uh, keep your desires in check, Uh, be angry and sin not, and so on, okay? So difficulties in obedience don't excuse us from obedience. We must overcome those difficulties, and we can do that in this particular case. So difficulties simply drive us to make sure that we are overcoming those difficulties so that we can implement God's word as faithfully as possible in a sinful world. Okay, I've given a number of policy suggestions here in my notes. I don't think I have time to go over all of them, but I just want to kind of uh, skim through them and, and touch a couple of the highlights. We want to make sure that the bar is very high for a death penalty case, very high. Okay, The bar for evidence. Um, 
the bar for uh, prosecutorial misconduct uh, has to be very stringent. Sometimes prosecutors are incompetent or vicious or cold in incriminating anyone, just anyone, just as long as they get someone, then they'll be able to keep their job or get reelected again or whatever. That, can, that has to be taken away as a motivation for them uh, in their work. Um, before the sentence is handed down, I think there should be a third party, objective party, whose job it is to ferret out cases of misconduct. Uh, people who uh, attempt to frame someone or prosecutors or police who attempt to frame someone or grossly mishandle a case should be liable to the same punishment that they sought to work on the offender, the alleged offender, okay? Uh, there has to be incontrovertible evidence, incontrovertible evidence, especially the standard of two or three witnesses. It's got to be absolute certainty. You know, it can't be somebody seeing a lineup and like, you know, yeah, it was dark and I couldn't, but I think it's that guy right there, you know. Crazy. It cannot be like that. If somebody slips through the crack, so to speak, who is guilty and goes to a punishment in prison, well, so be it. It has to be that way. Okay. Um, on my list, I have number five. Witnesses must be absolutely certain. Any doubts at all should permit the defense to uh, demand that evidence to be thrown out. Um, any doubts of any sort at all default to life in prison uh, in that kind of case. Have an outside review team. Special attention has to be given to correct past convictions of all sorts, past wrong convictions of all sorts, not just capital cases. Obviously, it's too late for those that have been carried out. But if there are wrong convictions in any area of law, it undermines the validity of the most serious convictions, not to mention the confidence of our citizens. So these are some of the things we do to overcome the difficulties of being obedient to God's word. Uh, number nine, I talk about being sympathetic to mental health cases. The problem is that if a mentally ill person is capable of murder, they are extremely dangerous. Okay? To have mercy on a gen any general person is, is a well-founded Christian principle. But being merciful, this is the kind of tension in this mercy thing, okay? Being merciful to someone who may be more dangerous than average because they're mentally ill doesn't seem quite right to me. Like they're mentally ill, therefore they're more dangerous, so therefore we should execute... Or we they're mentally ill, therefore more dangerous, therefore we should be more merciful to them. Does that sound right? Something a little bit off on that. Yes, mental illness is a mitigating factor. We have to take that into account. But just to say automatically it disqualifies somebody. What if somebody is a demon-possessed man like Adon Gadara, and all they do is they keep murdering? Today, we wouldn't diagnose the demon possession. How would we diagnose it? Mental illness. It would be diagnosed as mental illness. And then we'd say, oh, well, we've got to have mercy on this fellow. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's the right answer. Yeah. So in some cases, it may be more reason, not less reason, to carry out capital punishment. I, I know it sounds terrible. It's just it's awful. Now let's deal with the elephant in the room. Okay. You know what the elephant in the room is, brother? 
Roughly stated, the objection is that black men and women are convicted and punished in a disparate way compared to whites. Okay, I'm just going to throw it out there, brother. Okay, uh, we've got to be honest with ourselves here. If that is truly the case, it is sinful. The kind of justice that God teaches us is impartial justice. Impartial justice. Listen to these. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not show partiality in judgment. This is Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a, I mistyped there, bribe. James chapter 2, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James 2.9, But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Any partiality. Um, any wise in which you hear uh, the defense of a white man, you need to be hearing the defense of a black man as well. Does that make sense, brother? You give me a thumbs up or thumbs down if you think I'm going really bad, okay? God, I'm using a brother back there as a gauge. Um, this is bothersome, very bothersome. But, hear me out now, statistics can be misleading. As Christians, we do not want to be involved in anything misleading. Okay? For instance, men make up 49.5% of the population. You with me? But 93% of the population in federal prison are men. Is something necessarily wrong with this? Well, I mean, wrong, yeah. <laughs> Wish nobody would be going to prison or everybody would behave themselves. But in the absence of further hard data, it would be misleading to say that there's discrimination against men. Do you understand why? So men are disproportionately represented in prison population because of what reason? Maybe this system doesn't discriminate against men. It may be that men commit more crimes than women. I would have to dig further before I could make a conclusive statement more on that matter. But you see how statistics can be misleading. Mere statistics just based on population percentage don't tell you everything. You have to have more information. Similarly, listen carefully, I believe some, but I believe not all, some of the disparity in race may be due to differences in criminal behavior. Okay? But where discrimination exists, it must be vigorously rooted out. You know, some of the disparity uh, may not be based on criminality in the part of the offender. Some of the disparity may be criminality in the lawmakers, criminality in the prosecutors, criminality in the police, criminality in the judges. Could I, could I convince you of that? You've seen enough corruption to know that that's possible? So we can't just sit here and say, well, the guy's wearing a nice black robe and he has a gavel in his hand. He must be perfectly honest and innocent. Never. 
You cannot give people that kind of you know, benefit of the doubt. They're gonna, they have to have somebody watching over them. Somebody looking over their shoulder if they have the power to send somebody to the electric chair. Absolutely. No question about it. Now, I'm not trying to get into a big argument here or offend anyone. I'm just trying to say what I discern as facts and biblical theology as best I can. And we can carry this discussion on outside of this context. Uh, you know, and I'd like to encourage you to pursue that avenue, like one of our brothers did this week, as a way to let off any pressure that's built up in your mind on this subject. You know, you know what it feels like. I don't agree with what pastor's saying. By the way, the scripture says something about that. It talks about being quick to hear. What? Slow to speak and slow to wrath. Sometimes people, and that's in the context of hearing God's word. Don't get all upset about it and run off. We can talk to each other and kind of take the pressure off that pressure cooker uh, before blowing up or, or leaving the church altogether. Now, I've shared some policy ideas. What I want to highlight again, however, is this. Just because people do not always get it right does not mean that we throw out obedience to God. There's some cases that are so obvious, so compelling, so egregious that there is no excuse to not carry out the death penalty. Shall I offer some examples for your imagination? For society to not carry out the death penalty in such clear, egregious, awful cases is a sin. And I'm willing to say that, and I just said it. It is a sin. That sin has consequences that range far and wide for the society at large and for victims and victims' families. During this study uh, this week, thinking about these issues, the state of Oklahoma executed a man named Benjamin Cole, who 20 years ago broke the spine of his nine-month-old daughter and caused her to bleed to death. Despite some claim of mental illness, there was evidently no question that he committed the crime, just as there's been no question raised as to the culpability of Nicholas Cruz for the Parkland shooting, an illustration I used last week, or of Ethan Crumbly for the Oxford High School shooting. Uh, Those are all clear cases. Okay? Now, I'm not saying the death penalty should be given in all those cases. I'm just saying those are clear cases of, of criminal, sinful, wicked behavior that should bring that issue up. Okay, We already know about the Florida case. That's been disposed. Uh, the the uh, case in Michigan, we don't have the death penalty here, so that's not going to uh, be the case here. But to be clear, let me give you my position derived from Scripture. Three points. Number one, we cannot eliminate the death penalty altogether because our all-wise and merciful God has set it in place as the ultimate restraint against evil. Otherwise, evil will overrun good, and we will live in a society full of anarchy. Now, God records for us in Scripture the exercise of this punishment on numerous occasions. Okay, so my position is scriptural. Number two, we can and should exercise mercy on a case-by-case basis. For youthful offenders, those with mental illness, or other mitigating factors, you can probably think of others. God demonstrates mercy in the Scripture as well. So thus, my position is, again, based on Scripture. And thirdly, because of the sinfulness of all people, judges, prosecutors, and accusers included, not just murderers, we must be very conservative to make sure that the offender truly deserves the death penalty. The Scriptural rules for witnesses 
and punishment for false witnesses demonstrate this as well. Look, if you try to get somebody in the electric chair falsely, that's where you go. That will stop that right off the bat. If there's no penalty, if you can just go on and get elected again and keep getting your paycheck and your, and your uh, pension and all of that stuff, that's ridiculous. All three points that I've shared here are supported by Scripture. Where Scripture stands, I want to stand. I hope you'll stand with God in his book as well. As difficult as some things are in this life, dear friends, they must be done for the society to honor God. And you might ask, as I close, what can I do? After all, the laws are the laws, and I can't change that. True enough. True enough. But you can change something. You can change how you believe. You can believe rightly. You can believe God and how he explains the matter in his word. Trust him in his infinite goodness. You know, do not think that you can outthink God on this one. He has considered the totality of the world situation, every individual, every one of his attributes, of all possible future circumstances, of every possible expression of mercy and goodness and judgment and in his wisdom. He has put it all together and decided that Genesis 9-6 belongs in his book for our good and for his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom, which is beyond finding out. It's past comprehension. And we want to thank you, Lord, for that today. We pray that you would help us to believe rightly about these matters. In Jesus' name, amen.